You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Message today. Lord, I pray that it would be your words that would, would pour forth, Lord. I pray that it would be your words from Solomon that we would hear and not mine. Anywhere that I am uh, incorrect, Lord, I pray that those would fall on deaf ears. I pray for my brothers and sisters listening in the congregation today, Lord, that their hearts and their minds would be enlarged to the glory and the beauty of your name. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Join with me as we read our text for today. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we'll read uh, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun." There is nothing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. As we're beginning a a new sermon series today, we need to spend a few minutes uh, getting organized so as uh, I, most of you already have your Bibles near you, but grab a pew Bible if you don't, didn't bring your own. And uh, if you don't have one that is easy to read at home, please take this one uh, with you when you go as our gift. The point is I want you to have the Bible open on your lap so that you can follow along with the text as we uh, look at our passage today. I want you to receive the wisdom of Solomon and not my own wisdom. You'll recall the Bible is a compilation of 66 different books containing many different types or genres of writing. We have historical accounts such as Genesis or the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. We find poetry in the Psalms, the pastoral letters in the New Testament. Ecclesiastes is included in the three books of the Bible collectively called the wisdom literature. These books are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Collectively, these books examine the question, how are the people of God to live a good life? 
and I don't mean in the Joel Olstein best life now way, but rather how to live well in a fruitful manner that is pleasing and honorable to the Lord. Psalm 116 says, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And as the people of God, we know our future is secured in Christ in heaven, but we need to go to work tomorrow. There's diapers to be changed, there's children to be taught. And so we, refer, we can rely on the wisdom found in scripture to, to uh, figure out how we are to walk with our Lord all the days of our life on earth. Wisdom comes from the Hebrew word chokmah. Chokmah, or wisdom, is a direct attribute of God that is woven throughout his creation. Whereas Proverbs are simple moral statements or descriptions of how things in life usually work out, Ecclesiastes takes the somewhat simplified understanding of wisdom and directly addresses the fact that the reality of life clearly demonstrates that the wisdom of Proverbs does not always match our experience. Sometimes the righteous, the one who follows all of God's ways, is not blessed, and the one who scoffs at God is richly rewarded in this life. As we dive into our text for today, we need to set the stage for the book of Ecclesiastes, and that largely means identifying getting to know the author. And full disclosure, there is credible scholarly debate on the authorship of Ecclesiastes. One school of thought believes the book is written by a collector or an editor who assembled Solomon's wisdom at some time after his death. The other position holds that Solomon himself is the author. It is this last position that I personally hold. We read in the very first verse of Ecclesiastes, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And later in chapter 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. As we can see from the text, the author claims for himself to be king over Jerusalem. Since the author does not identify himself by name, the next question we must ask is which king in Israel? And turning to 1 Kings 2, 12, there we read, Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. Recognizing his inadequacy to lead the people of Israel and to acknowledge his utter dependence on the Lord, Solomon famously prayed for the wisdom to lead his people. And as we read in uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, and that says, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in, and your servant's is the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? The Lord answered Solomon's prayer and blessed him with understanding beyond measure such that Solomon was known throughout the world for his wisdom. Scripture tells us that royalty from the nations traveled to Jerusalem to seek Solomon's wisdom and were amazed at all that Solomon accomplished. Further confirmation of Solomon as the writer of Ecclesiastes comes from the content of the book itself. 
you will hear preached throughout the sermon series of Solomon's examination of life under the sun from a perspective only obtainable by someone who is a wealthy king. In Solomon's examination of pleasure in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, for example, we read of his massive building projects in Jerusalem. And further ahead in chapter 11, we read about Solomon's international trading exploits as he sent his, ships of, uh, his fleets of ships along the coast of Africa, returning with vast riches. All these things point to the author as being a man of great wealth and power. What then are we to make of the title preacher? The Hebrew word in our Bibles that is translated preacher is koheleth. Koheleth means assembler or collector and carries with it the implications of an office bearer. Nonetheless, the title koheleth appropriately applied, can be appropriately applied to the reigning king in the theocracy of Israel. The role of king in ancient Israel, it was not of a secular monarchy such as we have here in Canada or Great Britain. Rather, the kings of Israel were anointed by God to command a spiritual leadership role over their nations. When the ark was, remember when David was dancing and worshiping when the ark was brought into Jerusalem? Or remember how the nation of Israel was blessed or cursed depending on the degree to which the reigning king led his nation in the worship of God. With Solomon accepted as author, we can place the time of, his, of writing at near the end of his life and it could be, can be understood that Solomon is addressing this book of Ecclesiastes to the younger people of his nation to share with them the wisdom that the wisest man who had ever lived had gathered over the course of his life. With this background information covered, let us carry on into our text for today. And reading in uh, verse number two, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. And here in the very second verse of the book, we slam into one of the chief difficulties of our understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes. This word, vanity. Or for those of you who are reading in the NLT or the uh, NIV, you will see meaningless. Meaningless, says the preacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now that's kind of a kick in the gut, wouldn't you say? Anyone else feeling completely deflated right now? Didn't I just promise you a few moments ago that Ecclesiastes is a book full of wisdom, hope, and the goodness of God? And now Solomon makes this overarching statement that all of life is vanity or meaningless. This verse stands as the building block for all that follows in the book. Everything builds upon this central idea that all is vanity. But is this really what Solomon is saying? Is all of life really pointless and meaningless? Fortunately, we can take a deep breath of relief because of the presence of one Hebrew word that will change our understanding of this foundational verse. The English words for vanity or meaningless that we find in our modern Bible translations come from the Hebrew word hevel. Spelled with a B, but it rhymes with level. Hevel is simply translated as breath, vapor, or mist. By way of illustration, let's move to a time of class participation. So put down your notes, 
small children, put down your coffee, and hold your hand in front of your face, just like this. Now say the word hevel, being aware of its two syllables. Hevel. What do you feel in the palm of your hand? Pronounced correctly, you should feel two small puffs of air. Puffs of breath. Move this exercise outside on a cold morning, and then what will you see? The water vapor in your breath condenses in the cold air into a visible mist. But what happens to that mist? Does it hang around long? No, it is fleeting. Can you control it? Does it go where you want it to? No. Can you grasp a hold of it? Can you seize it and place it in a jar? No, the very act of raising your hand to direct your breath causes it to move away from your hand. Hold in your mind these images of breath, vapor, and mist, and we will see three ways in which the word hevel is used in Ecclesiastes. Hevel defines life as being elusive, incomprehensible, or impossible to understand. Hevel defines life as being uncontrollable. Life is simply impossible to control. And finally, Hevel defines life as fleeting, as in short, in time. Verse 2 would literally be read, breath of breath, says the preacher. Breath of breath. All is breath. The repetition of vanity of vanities or breath of breath is a form of intensity or emphasis or completeness. We see this in Deuteronomy 10.14 where we read, Behold, the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heaven. Or Revelation 19.16, Our robe, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Life is a mere breath. Returning to our Bible translations that use the word vanity or meaningless, is this what Solomon is really saying? Is life meaningless? Absolutely not. By way of illustration, how Hevel is used to make sense of Ecclesiastes, did any of you see the sunrise this morning? It was a fantastic and beautiful palette of pinks and purples and light painted across the sky. It was fleeting, as in it did not last for a long time, but it was hardly meaningless. Rather, it was an awe-inspiring display of God's glory painted across the heavens. Fleeting, yes. Meaningless, no. Or take the heart-rending tragedy of a baby born with severe complications who struggles for life but dies after only a few short hours. Hevel applies here as well. The baby's life was fleeting in time, but you cannot say that that baby's short life was meaningless. This life was certainly not meaningless in God's kingdom. Hevel applies as well to the baby's grieving parents, the particular use of Hevel here is that of elusiveness. It may be impossible for the parents to understand the reason why their child lived for only a few short hours, whereas the other parents get to see their children grow up strong and healthy. This short life was anything 
but meaningless in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. Again, from the parent's perspective, this is a tragedy that eludes all understanding, is beyond human comprehension, but not meaningless. The Hebrew word hevel demonstrates that life is fleeting, short, impossible to control, and difficult to understand, but not meaningless. How then are we to apply our understanding of the word hevel to our lives? This is what Solomon is calling us to do. Stop. Just stop. Stop trying to control your life. Stop trying to overanalyze every event that happens. Do you face a big decision in life? Then seek godly counsel. Do wise research and bring your decision before God in prayer. And then just make the best decision that you can. Do you scour Pinterest looking for the latest organizational ideas so that everything in your house has its perfect place? Do you control your schedule with an iron fist, having a designated number of minutes for each and every activity in your calendar? Accept that we cannot understand all that occurs in life and that we cannot control all of the events of our life. Just accept it. And from this acceptance comes rest. Rest as we surrender our battle to understand and control every detail of our lives. Rest in the arms of a sovereign God who has every atom in the universe under his control so that you don't have to. Accepting Solomon's thesis statement that life is hevel, fleeting, impossible to control, impossible to understand, we read in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now this is a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a literary or conversational device in which a statement is made, but it is stated in the form of a question. In other words, a rhetorical question is asked in order to make a statement rather than to receive an answer. When my wife asked me this morning, are you really going to wear that? I instinctively knew that she was not asking me a question, but rather was making a statement about my questionable fashion choices. Likewise, as we read in verse 3, we intuitively know that the answer to Solomon's question, what does man gain from all of his toil, is nothing. What does Solomon mean when he talks about gain? The original word used here in the Hebrew text is yitron, which is translated as profit, gain, advantage, or leverage. The meaning of profit is easily understandable. Profit is simply the positive remainder that a business has uh, left over um, after all of the uh, uh, costs incurred to earn that income is subtracted from it. Whatever remains is the profit or the gain. Leveraging is a concept of using a small input to create a much larger input. The most common understanding of leverage comes from the world of physics. Suppose I had a very large boulder in my front lawn that I wanted moved. I would be presented with two choices. 
One is to call Arnold and have him come and lift it for me. Or, if Arnold's not available, I could use a lever. A lever, resting on a fulcrum, acts as a force multiplier, allowing a relatively small force applied at one end to be multiplied into a much larger force at the other end of the lever. This resulting multiplication of force would allow me to move the rock. Leveraging is used as a method of gaining control. And this ultimately is the desire of man to gain control. Control over every area of our lives. We crave control. Control defeats uncertainty, and we all hate uncertainty. This desire for control manifests itself in a desire to usurp God as the authority over our lives. This should sound familiar to us all because this is exactly what Adam chose to do in the Garden of Eden, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open and, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the rest is history. As man toils at his work, does he gain leverage over his world? Does man, through his work, gain control over his life? To each of these questions, the answer is still a resounding, no, he does not. Before we move into verses 4 through 7, we need to understand this expression, under the sun. This phrase is used at least 30 times in the book, which is a clue to its importance. Now here in our passage today, the expression under the sun is used by Solomon to describe the activities of nature and man in the realm of the created world. This expression will be repeated over and over again throughout the book, and its definition will be expanded upon appropriately as we move through this sermon series. In order to illustrate the idea that man gains nothing from all of his toil under the sun, Solomon expands his viewpoint to examine the activities of the natural world, demonstrating that even the natural world does not gain from its endless toil. Reading in verse 4, Solomon says, The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Is the sun a better sun after it hastens back to its starting place each morning? Does the sun burn brighter for each cycle it makes across the sky? Once again, we all know the answer to this question is no, it does not. The sun gains nothing from its repetitive activity. What about the wind? Here in Alberta, we are all too familiar with the vagaries of the wind. Solomon writes, The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. And around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. But does it return a better wind? Does the wind of today have more bluster to offer than the wind of yesterday? Again, we know the answer to this is no, it does not. Finally, in verse 7 we read, All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. The sea is never full. The activity of the hydrological cycle brings no gain, no completion, no profit to the ocean. 
The activities of the natural world produce no gain. If there is no gain from the activities of the sun, water, or wind, how then can man, a mere creature, expect anything to be different? You read Ecclesiastes uh, verse 1, verses 8 through 11. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot under- utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already, and in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, and nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after Not only does Solomon say that there is no gain from all of man's activities under the sun, but it is even worse. Not only is life unprofitable, but it is full of weariness. And not just a physical weariness that is the natural result of ceaseless activity, but specifically the weariness that results from a ceaseless toil that never attains satisfaction. As Solomon continues, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. The eye never says, okay, I've had enough. I'm done. No, it keeps on seeing as long as the eyelids are open. Likewise, the ear continually hears sounds all day long, both pleasant and unpleasant. But the ear never stops hearing. Nor is the stomach ever truly satisfied. We eat a meal and we are temporarily satiated but the satisfaction does not last. We are soon hungry once more and return to the refrigerator. We eat, but are never truly satisfied. Perhaps, then, if we look for satisfaction outside of our bodies, satisfaction beyond our eyes or ears, there will we find satisfaction. But here, Solomon is quick to disappoint us. We read in verse 10, Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been done already in the ages before us. Now, before you all reach into your pockets and pull out your fancy smartphones and say, hey, look, this is new, let me assure you that Solomon is not making a commentary that there will never be new inventions. The history of of humanity has clearly demonstrated that there have been nothing but a continual stream of inventions. But all of these new inventions were created to fulfill basic human needs for food, transportation, communication, etc. And mankind's needs, both physical and spiritual, are the same today as they were during the reign of Solomon. If we cannot find our satisfaction by fulfilling the appetites of the body, nor be satisfied with the advances of technology or material gain, then let us turn to the famous vice of humanity, the desire to achieve something great so that we will be remembered. This desire to be famous so we will be remembered by a great many or simply be remembered by friends and family after we are gone comes from our knowledge of our mortality and our terror of dying. We numb our fear of dying by attempting to take comfort in the hope that we will be remembered when we are gone. But Solomon is quick to strip us of even this hope 
when we are gone, we really won't be remembered for long. Man, that is heavy. And I'm sure that we are all feeling pretty weighted down at this point. I know I promised you from the beginning that Ecclesiastes was a hopeful book and an encouraging and comforting book. But the text that we have looked today is decidingly depressing. How do we process this? What are we to do with this passage of Scripture? What is Solomon doing? Is he simply kicking us in the gut and allowing us to wallow in our misery and our toil? The answer to this is both yes and no. Solomon does not shy away from telling you the hard truth, and he is none too quick to bring his readers out of the darkness. In Solomon's wisdom, he knows that it is good for us and necessary for us to remain in contemplation of the brokenness of our world, and more importantly, the brokenness of our own souls. But what is the point of this contemplation? In God's kindness, he leads us through darkness for the display of his glory for our own good. David famously spoke to this in Psalm 23, where he says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I don't know about you, but I can personally testify that it has consistently been in my darkest moments that God's glory has shone most brightly. And this is a pattern that we are going to see as we continue forward in our study of Ecclesiastes. Solomon will time after time lead us through an examination of life's darkest, most frustrating and incomprehensible moments. But... He will also lead us to those times when life feels like the first warm days of spring after a long and harsh winter. Unlike Solomon, I will not leave you hanging here as we leave Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Just as our bumper video alluded to, we are going to sneak a peek at one of the final verses of Ecclesiastes because it completes a refrain that is repeated over and over throughout the course of this book. Flip ahead with me as we read Ecclesiastes 12.13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. How then are we to carry out this whole duty of man. First, we must fear God. What does it mean to fear God? In one sense, it means exactly what it sounds like. God is a mighty and terrifying God. Countless verses in the Old Testament describe God as fearsome. For example, in Nahum 12, or in Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we read, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance upon his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are but the dust of his feet. 
So yes, it is right to be terrified of God. This is especially true if you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your savior. Scripture describes your condition as being an enemy of God. And yes, having God as your enemy is indeed terrifying. But even as this passage from Nahum hints at, this God who is slow to anger and great in power is also rich in mercy and full of love. He made a way for us to be adopted as his children through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul writes in Romans verse 5.10, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Fearing God for the believer is not a posture of terror, but rather a position of awe, worship, and honor towards a mighty protector. God is often portrayed in Scripture as a fearsome warrior. When contemplating a warrior, our response to that warrior depends on our position. If this warrior God that we read about in Nahum is coming at us as our enemy to strike us down, this is truly a position of terror. But if this warrior is ahead of us, leading us into battle, or standing firm between us and the enemy, defending us and protecting us, this is a safe and glorious place to be. This awe and this wonder should fill the believer with an overwhelming desire to keep his commandments. So for those of you who have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ, Make today the day. Whatever is holding you back, let it go. Grab a hold of Christ as your Savior, as your Savior from the vengeful wrath of God. Take yourself out of the line of fire as the enemy of God and enter into the camp of the children of God under the wing of his protection. In order to fulfill the whole duty of man, we must rightly fear God and we also must keep his commandments. This means each and every one of them. Every command in the Bible. Have you ever lied, even a little one? Ever stolen something, even small pieces of time from your employer? Been angry with your sister? Grumbled or complained under your breath? Congratulations, you have sinned. And even the tiniest infraction is a grievous sin against our holy God. How then can we possibly stand against such an impossible standard? We cannot. But Christ can and has. And it is this is how we meet the standard. By trusting in Christ. Through him alone we have the access to the power to battle against sin, to walk in greater and greater paths of righteousness as we walk daily with our Lord and Savior. But, friends, the fact remains, we will still sin in this life. Christians are not immune to sin. We do not become believers in Jesus Christ one day and then immediately stop sinning. We will battle sin all the days of our life under the sun. Some days we will win, other day, days we will stumble and fall. But even when we fall, Jesus Christ has taken that sin upon his shoulders and borne the fearsome wrath of God for our sin 
on our behalf. For those of you here today who are believers in Jesus Christ, this is your duty, the whole duty of man. No matter how long you have walked with Christ, be it a few weeks, or if it has been decades since you placed your faith in Jesus, it is your duty to remember. It is your duty to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember what it cost him to bear your sin, to take on the wrath of God that was rightfully yours to bear. Remember the weight of your sin, the burden you placed on Christ. But most importantly, it is your duty to remember the great love of Christ. For we must never forget, must never lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ went to the cross, both out of obedience to his heavenly Father, but also because of the unsurpassable love with which he loves you. As you leave today, this is my desire for you. Accept that life is hevel. Accept that you cannot control life, so stop trying. Accept that you cannot understand life. Stop overanalyzing it. Accept that life under the sun, S-U-N, is fleeting and short. Remember and rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. For this is life under the sun, S-O-N. We're going to continue in a time of remembrance and reflection as we celebrate communion together. The worship team is going to come up and they're going to play an instrumental melody for us while the ushers uh, pass out the elements. And remember, you're going to receive two cups. One will have the grape juice and one will have the, uh, the bread. Also, if you have not personally placed your trust in Christ, please let the elements just pass you by. And finally, once you've received the elements, we're going to take a few moments in quiet personal reflection. Take a moment to remember the weight of, of your sin that Christ took upon you on the cross. And after a few moments of reflection, I will come up and we will celebrate communion together.